Salvete omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati, eamos. AP Latin Podcast, episode 15b, Aeneid Book 2, lines 559 to 566 and 589 to 620. In this episode, you will learn that a whole lot of things happen that are not in the AP syllabus lines, but that are still really cool. A quick note about the passage before we start the Latin. In this episode, I will be skipping a block of the text, lines 567 to 588, in which Aeneas sees Helen, formerly of Sparta, now of Troy. Even though the scene comes in the middle of this episode's narrative, since some scholars think that the lines may not have originally been written by Virgil, I will cover the section separately in the next episode. Now on to the Latin. At me tum primum saevus circumstetitoror. Obstipui subiet cari genitoris imago, ut reg ai quae vum crudeli vulnera vidi vitexalantem subiet deserta creusa et direpta domus et parvicasus iuli. Respiciet quae sit me circum copia lustro, de seruerum nes defeset corpora saltu ad terram miseraut ignibus aegra dedera. Cum mihi se non antaculis tam clara videndam obtulit et pura per noctin luce refulsit, alma perens. Confessa deam qualisque videri caelicolis et quanta solet extraque prehensum continuit, roseo quaec insuperadivit ore. Nate quis indomitas tantus dolor excitat iras. Quid furis, aut quo nam nostri tibi cura recessit. Non prius aspicies ubi fessaitate parentem, liqueris ancisen superet coniunxne creusa, ascaniusque puer, quos omnes undique graiae, circa rantacies et ni mea cura resistat, iam flamae tulerent inimicus et hauserit insis. Non tibi tindare disfacies in visa lecainae, culpa tusve paris divin clementia divum, has evertit ope sternit qua culmine troiam. Aspice, nam quam nem quae nunc abducta tuenti mortales hebetat visus tibet umida circum caligat. Nube ripiam tu ne qua parentis, iusa time neu praeceptis parere recusa. Hic ubi disiectas moles a volsaque saxis, saxa vides, mixto quundantem polvera fumum, Neptunus, muros magnoque mota tridenti, fundamenta quatit, totam qua sedibus urbem eruit. Hic unos scaeas aevissima portas prima tenet sociumque furens a navibus agmen, bero a quincta vocat. Iam sumas arces tritonia respice palas, insedit nimbe fulgens et gorgone saeva, ipse pater danais animos viresque secundas sufficit, ipse deos in dardana suscitat arma, 
Erepe nate fugam finem quem pone labori nus qua tutum patriote limine sistam. But then fierce horror first surrounded me. I stood dumbstruck. The image of my dear father rose up as I saw the king, equal in age, breathing out his life from a cruel wound. There rose up abandoned Creusa and my plundered house and the misfortune of little Eulis. I look back and survey what forces are around me. Weary all have deserted me, and with a leap sent their bodies to the earth or gave them weak to the fires. When my nurturing parent presented herself to me to be seen, not before so clear to my eyes, and shone through the night in the pure light, having revealed the goddess, and what she is like, and how great she is accustomed to be seen to the heavenly dwellers, and held me in place, having been seized with her right hand, and added these things in addition from her rosy mouth. Son, what so great grief arouses untamable angers? Why do you rage, or where has concern for you of us withdrawn? Will you not first see where you have left your weary with age father Anchises, whether your wife Creusa survives and your boy Ascanius, around all of whom everywhere Greek battle lines wander, and if my care did not resist it, already the flames would have taken and the hostile sword would have drunk. Not for you is the face of Lacanian Tyndaria hated, or Paris at fault. The mercilessness of the gods, of the gods, overturns these resources and lays low Troy from its peak. Look, for I will remove every cloud which, drawn around you while watching, now dulls mortal sight, and damp making it dark around you. You, do not fear any orders of your parents, nor refuse to obey my commands. Here, where you see ruined heaps and rocks torn from rocks, and the smoke billowing with dust mixed in, Neptune shakes the walls and foundations, dislodged with his great trident, and uproots the whole city from its base. Here, most cruel Juno first holds the Skyian gate, and, raging, girded with iron, calls an allied army from the ships. Look back, already Tritonian palace occupies the highest citadels, shining forth from a cloud and with the cruel Gorgon. The father himself supplies spirits and favorable strength to the Greeks. He himself stirs the gods against Trojan arms. Son, take flight and place an end on your labor. Nowhere will I be absent, and I will set you safe on your ancestral threshold. Last time, we had followed Aeneas up to the roof of King Priam's palace, and looking down on the inner courtyards of the palace, Aeneas sees Pyrrhus, also called Neoptolemus. Pyrrhus is the son of Achilles, and at this time he is barely a teenager, but he has his dad's Super Saiyan warrior powers. He has stepped in to fill the shoes left when his father was killed by Paris, and he is ruthless. As Aeneas looks down into the courtyard, he sees Pyrrhus grab a battle axe and single-handedly smash his way through the doors of the palace, letting the horde of Greek forces flood in. Meanwhile, Priam puts on his armor and prepares to die in glorious battle, despite the fact that he is so old that he can barely stand under its weight. But his wife Hecuba convinces him to join her and some of the other Trojan women, who are clinging to an altar for safety in the hopes that the Greeks will not defile the sacred space with bloodshed. And just then, Polites, one of Priam's sons, rushes into the hall wounded, with Pyrrhus right on his heels. Pyrrhus catches up to Polites and murders him before Priam's eyes. Enraged, Priam steps forward and shouts at Pyrrhus in full fury. He tells Pyrrhus that his horrible behavior proves that he isn't a true son of Achilles, and reminds him about how Achilles once had had pity when he gave Hector's body back for burial. Then he feebly throws his spear at his foe, but the weapon hits uselessly against Pyrrhus' shield. Pyrrhus responds by saying, 
You can tell my father all about my terrible deeds and how much I fall short of him when you meet him. Now die. Then he grabs Priam by the hair and drags him, slipping through his son's blood, to the altar, where he buries his sword hilt deep in Priam's chest. The final scene of the entire Aeneid will have Aeneas killing Turnus in a similar way, prompting us to question the cost of founding Rome and whether Aeneas has become a monster like Pyrrhus over the course of his journey. This section ends with a reference to Priam's headless body lying unburied and nameless on a beach. To a Roman, this remark would have immediately recalled the dishonorable death of Pompey the Great. During the civil war against Julius Caesar, after Pompey had lost the Battle of Pharsalus, he fled to Egypt. There, the king Ptolemy had Pompey murdered and his head cut off and presented to Caesar, which Caesar was none too happy about. And Pompey's body was left on the shore, unburied and headless. Here is where we rejoin the Latin lines. Seeing Priam's murder brings the image of Aeneas' own father back to his mind, and he is rushing back to his house when he sees Helen hiding in the temple of Vesta. This is the section that the next episode will cover in detail, so the only point I will mention here in reference to these lines is that Aeneas really, really wants to kill Helen, to exact some kind of vengeance for the sack of the city and the deaths of so many Trojans. It is here that Venus pops in, looking more goddess-like than Aeneas has ever seen her appear before. She stops him and attempts to set him back on his original path home to check on his family. This section brings back a theme that we encountered very early in our reading of the Aeneid. Recall that part of Virgil's treatment of the story involves transforming Aeneas from a Homeric hero into a proto-Roman hero. Where we encounter Aeneas in Book 2, he is at his most Homeric. He is a man who looks to honor and glory as surpassing all else, and in the process of seeking a heroic death and misplaced vengeance for wounded honor, he lets himself become ruled by his emotions and he forgets his responsibilities. Those to his family as well as those entrusted to him by Hector's ghost in the last episode. Priam's death snaps him back to his senses for the first time, and then Venus's appearance and speech tries to bring him back to his senses a second time. She tells him that neither Helen nor Paris is at fault for what is happening, but that everything he is seeing is the work of the gods. Then, she pulls back the curtain, as it were, allowing him to see the divine events that would otherwise be shrouded to his mortal eyes. Aeneas sees gods and goddesses taking part in the fighting and tearing through the city. He sees Neptune, god of earthquakes in addition to the sea, pulling down the walls stone by stone that he himself had built, and shaking the foundations of the city. He sees Juno protecting the Skyan Gate, the entrance that the Trojans destroyed in order to bring the horse into the city. He sees Minerva occupying the citadel and Jupiter overseeing it all. And this is where the AP syllabus selection from Book 2 ends, but the story of the fall of Troy is not yet finished. Aeneas makes it back to his house where his father Anchises refuses to leave, until two omens change his mind. First, the head and hair of Aeneas' son Ulysses, otherwise known as Ascanius, suddenly catches fire but does not burn him. And second, a meteor streaks across the sky and disappears in the woods near Mount Ida. So Aeneas sets out to flee the city carrying his father on his shoulders, leading his son by the hand and with his wife following closely behind. This iconic image symbolically representing him shouldering the past and protecting the future of Troy as he takes up his mission. But there is a problem. At some point during their rush through the side roads and alleys of the city, his wife Creusa gets separated from the group. Aeneas doesn't recognize that she is not with him until after they reach a shrine outside of the city, at which point he rushes back into the inferno and spends the rest of the night desperately retracing his steps and revisiting all of the places she might have ended up. This goes on until Creusa's ghost appears to him and tells him he has to leave, that his destiny includes another wife and a new city in the west, 
and asks him to take care of their child. As she fades away, Aeneas tries three times to embrace her, and three times her image slips away from him like fog. He exits the city again and rejoins his father to see a large group of exiles that had assembled at the shrine. And as dawn breaks, Book Two closes with Aeneas setting out towards the mountains, now the leader of the Trojan remnant. As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. After the death of Priam, Aeneas suddenly remembers his own father, home, and family. How does Virgil use the theme of family, especially parent-to-child connections, to link to the previous and to the next scenes? What has happened to the group of people that was with Aeneas? How does Aeneas' interaction with his mother in this scene compare to his first meeting with her on the coast of North Africa in Book 1? Where does this scene portray Aeneas as falling victim to his emotions? How is he brought back to his senses and reminded of his obligations and pietas? What major points does Venus make while trying to convince Aeneas to return to his home? What does Venus reveal to Aeneas when she takes away the divine cloud shrouding mortal vision? Who has been orchestrating the fall of Troy? How do supernatural occurrences shape the flow of this narrative? How does Aeneas' story of exile parallel that of Dido's? Gratias ago pro auscultando, valete. <laughs>